Good morning. My name is Philip Van Steenberg. I serve here as one of the associate pastors on staff at Redeemer Church of Dubai. Uh, this morning we are opening up God's Word in Luke chapter 19. Back in my hometown, my grandparents lived very close to where I grew up. My grandfather would often drive to the grocery store around the corner from his house, usually to go pick up something from my grandmother. But as he got older, dementia began to set in. And this routine trip to the grocery store suddenly became very dangerous. I remember one day, my grandfather went out and went missing for hours. My grandmother called the police. We were informed as her family. And later that night, she got a call from the police in the neighboring state saying that they had found my grandfather driving around lost. He had no idea how far from home he had strayed. And he had continued driving around thinking that he had just made one wrong turn and he'd find his way back home soon. That was a really scary time for us, as you can imagine. My grandfather was lost and he didn't know it. He needed someone to come looking for him. And in that way, he's a lot like Zacchaeus in our story this morning. Maybe a lot like some of us. We are lost in this world. Many of us are trying to find our way to truth, to meaning, to fulfillment, to hope. And not having any clue how we're going to get there. The passage from Luke 19 gives us hope that no matter how lost we are, we don't have to stay lost. I think that's the whole point of this story that Delna just read for us. And, and Luke, the author, gives us a very helpful summary to, to confirm the point of this passage in verse 10. He writes, The Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. There is a way to be found. This story focuses in on the interaction between three main characters. You have Zacchaeus, you have Jesus, and you have the crowd. And in this interaction we see one man finds who he's looking for, another man gets found, And everybody else, well, we'll see. So our outline this morning follows those three characters. First, we see the seeker. Second, the self-righteous. And third, the savior. The seeker, the self-righteous, and the savior. First, the seeker. Let's read again verses 1 through 6. He, referring to Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. In other words, he was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Luke is setting up the story in the first four verses. Last week we saw Jesus has just healed a blind man outside Jericho, and now he's making his way through the city. And there's this Jewish man named Zacchaeus who had heard about Jesus probably and wants to see what the buzz is about around this guy. So like an eager fan who arrives early to the show to get a good seat, he tries to get a good spot. But being short, he knows he can't just stand at the back of the crowd. He'll never get a good view. So he climbs a tree. The things we see about Zacchaeus, he's a rich man. And if you know Luke... That's not really a good thing. Earlier in Luke 18, Jesus said it's very hard for people with riches to enter into God's kingdom. So his riches here are actually working against him, is what Luke is telling us. Zacchaeus is also the chief tax collector, which was in that time, and maybe some of us consider still is, a really shady job. He was probably hated by most, if not all, the citizens of Jericho. Certainly by his Jewish countrymen. His job was to take other Jews' money and give it to the hated Roman And in the exchange, he took a little bit of Jewish money off the top to make himself rich. A shady job. But one thing that you might not notice, that is working in his favor in terms of Luke's story of the whole gospel, is that Jesus has a track record of hanging out with tax collectors. You see that in Luke chapter 5. So so what does this mean? What do we see of this man Zacchaeus? He has a plan. He's a man with a plan to see Jesus. The text says he's seeking to see who Jesus was. But there's a problem with his plan. A problem he might not, probably doesn't see. As the story of the blind man illustrates, the one we thought about last week, you don't see Jesus, who he really is, with physical eyes. You see him with faith. So getting a look at Jesus from a tree is not going to help Zacchaeus see who Jesus truly is. There's going to need to be more happen here than Zacchaeus just getting a passing glance of a man walking down the street. As clever and proactive as Zacchaeus' strategy, his tree-climbing strategy might seem at the outset, we find his mission to see Jesus is really not off to a good start. Not if he wants to truly see Jesus. Jesus, then, draws closer to Zacchaeus. And at the very place where Zacchaeus sits perched up in his tree, with crowds of people all around... That's the place where Jesus stops walking. He looks up. He calls Zacchaeus by name. Then Jesus gives him a command. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I wonder what you think about this interaction. It might seem like Jesus is rewarding Zacchaeus' efforts. As if Jesus notices this little man scrambling behind the, the, the crowds looking for a way to see him. 
climbing up a tree and is impressed by his effort. And so he calls out to Zacchaeus to reward him for the effort. I actually think that's the opposite of what's going on here. Zacchaeus' efforts, by the end of this story, it becomes clear, have really nothing to do with the total outcome of the story. Zacchaeus doesn't know what he's looking for, except simply to see Jesus. And really, he's just taking the path of least resistance, especially considering that the crowd was blocking him from seeing Jesus, a crowd that he knows hates him and probably wouldn't miss the opportunity to throw in an elbow or two if Zacchaeus tried to make his way to the front. Zacchaeus is picked out of the crowd because Zacchaeus is the one person Jesus is looking for. You see the irony of this story start to unfold. Zacchaeus may be seeking, but Jesus is the true seeker. And he is seeking, and he is finding Zacchaeus. I wonder if you might be here this morning and are looking for something deeper than what your life offers you right now. You may be very wealthy like Zacchaeus. Or you may be very poor. You might have a lot of friends and a busy social life. Or you may be very lonely. Often when people sense a void or an emptiness in their life, they go on a search for truth. People will spend years examining philosophies, attending seminars by gurus, therapists, and monks, all in the name of seeking truth. But there's no special virtue in being a seeker of truth. Finding is as important, if not more important, as seeking. An endless journey to find truth without finding it, well, that's the same thing as being lost. Truth is a person. Truth is not a vague idea. Truth is not a concept that you might get or might not get or that we all might just have a a different version of. Truth is a single person. Jesus is truth. And Jesus finds us. So if you're searching for truth, might I suggest, instead of of spending your life looking for truth where it can't be found, you could begin asking Jesus to find you this morning. Now, if you weren't too familiar with Jesus, you might think he's a bit on the demanding side, maybe a little pushy, when he talks to Zacchaeus. He doesn't appear to know Zacchaeus. We don't know if Jesus ever had a conversation with Zacchaeus before this point. But he calls him out and tells him, hurry up, get down from the tree, I want to be in your house. What's the rush? And why is it necessary for Jesus to go to this guy's house? Well, to understand Jesus' urgency, we need to see the bigger picture of what's happening here. Jesus is only passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And he has specific purposes for Jericho. He needs to do, as Luke tells us, he needs to do two specific things. He needs to heal a blind man, 
And he needs to spend time and be with Zacchaeus in his house. Those two events are going to become very important for understanding what, what he's about to do in Jerusalem. Jesus is showing the people he came to save. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to show how he saves them. In Jerusalem, Jesus will submit himself to unjust trials. He will be wrongly accused. And he will be put to death. Jesus will be put on a cross where his life will be taken and his blood will be shed. That's what waits in the next city. Jesus knows that in order to save Zacchaeus, in order to be the one on whom the blind man had set his faith, he must submit his life to the cross. When Jesus gives his life on that cross, he gives up himself in place of people like Zacchaeus to bring salvation and sight and life to people like the blind man. Those are the people that Jesus had in mind when He gave up His own life. If you're here and you have never heard of what Jesus has done to rescue lost people, to save us from our sins, give me just a moment to explain that to you. It's worth worth this whole morning for you to hear this one thing I want to tell you. We are sinners. All of us are sinners. We have all rebelled against God. God who created us. To God we owe every aspect of our being. Full obedience to Him. And that's how He created us to live with Him. But each one of us has chosen. That's not what we want. We want our own life. We want our own ways. We want to choose our own path. And so we rebel against God. And we follow after other gods. For that, we deserve to die. All of us. You and me. But Jesus, as as we know He's going to do in the story in Jerusalem, He surrenders His life to be the payment we deserve to pay. We should have paid our lives for the punishment that we deserved because of the rebellion we committed against God. But Jesus did it instead. He put Himself in our place and took God's punishment against our sin on Himself. That's what He was doing on the cross. And He was doing it for people who would have never known they even needed it. And if you trust in that this morning, if you believe that Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who died for your sins, like the blind man clearly does, like Zacchaeus clearly will, then you can be rescued You can be rescued from death. And you can have life in Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' plan for Jerusalem. He had to be in Zacchaeus' house so that he could demonstrate to everyone that he is a man on a mission to seek and to save sinners. Jesus wasn't a nomad. 
He wasn't an aimless healer just sort of wandering around doing good. He moved with purpose. As we watch Jesus, it's as if he didn't even see anybody else. He's walking these crowded streets with Zacchaeus' face in his mind. Jesus goes to one city, stops on one street, looks into one tree, calls one man's name in order to end up in one house. Jesus entered Jericho knowing that by the end of the day, he would be with Zacchaeus. And that's how Jesus seeks everyone he saves. With the same kind of intentionality. Reflecting on his own arrival at belief in Jesus Christ, his own conversion, uh, the late author and, and evangelical theologian, John Stott, I think summarized this well. He said, Our faith is due to Jesus Christ Himself, who pursues us relentlessly, even when we are running away from Him in order to go our own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, we would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Zacchaeus then responds, He's he's happily and eager, eagerly responding to Jesus' commands here. He instantly opens up his home and he instantly receives Jesus. My fellow brother, sister, believer here, is, is obedience to Jesus still joyful for you? Are you as happy to be a servant in God's house as you were the first day he made you his child? If not, what in your life is stealing that joy? See, the further we get from the light of the cross, the darker our lives become. Be on the lookout this week for two things that will rob you of your joy in Christ. Discontentment and despair. Discontentment is a sense that you don't have everything or, or all that you need. It lives in a heart that believes God owes you more than what He's giving to you right now. And when discontentment is at home in our hearts, joy has nowhere to stay. It's impossible to be happy in what Christ has done while thinking about all the things God has not done for you. The other joy thief is despair. Despair often shows up after we have tried and failed. So you've tried to be a good mom and your kids continue to disobey and act out. You've tried to walk closely with the Lord, but your prayers are so erratic, spotty. You've tried to be a good witness for Christ at work, but you've given in time and time again to fear. Despair creeps in the back door of our hearts and it whispers, just give up. Just give up. It's impossible to be joyful about what Christ has done while thinking about all that we have not done for Christ. The path back to joy is remembering what Christ has done to secure your joy, to bring you joy. 
The Father sent Jesus His Son to to seek you out to find you. At some point in eternity past, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit organized a search party to go looking for you and for me. They saw how lost we were. And Jesus knew if ever we were going to be found, He would need to leave His Father's side and go on the greatest rescue mission ever. Our names, our faces on Jesus' mind as He left heaven and came to earth. Jesus came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Of course, the life of joy in Christ is not automatic. It's not as if we can just want it and it's all of a sudden going to appear. No, we fight for it. We have to fight for it. And we fight for it by examining our desires, letting others help examine our desires too, sifting through them, looking for signs of discontentment. We fight for joy by tracing our feelings of despair, locating them, identifying them, opening up to them, and then tracing them. Where is this coming from? Where do we feel like we have failed? Where do we feel like others have failed us? That takes time. That takes prayer. It might even need the help of others. And even when we're generally joyful and content, we continue to fight for joy daily, remembering that Jesus sought us. Jesus died for us. Jesus did this to deliver us from the chains of discontentment, despair, and all other sin. And we remember that Jesus didn't stop at the cross, but he rose again and freed us to a life of joyful trust, a life of peace in what only he can do and what he has done. That's where our joy will come from. All we need is what Christ has done and what the Father will continue to do through his Spirit's work in us. So Jesus sought us. He's the seeker until he found us. Now as his people, he brings us into the search party. We now join his search efforts for others who are lost. So Redeemer, let's scour and search through and look forward in Dubai, the lost around us. Let's be looking Let's pray for their rescue. Let's find the rich and the poor, the tired and the hurting, the discouraged, the weak, and let's bring them news of rescue through Jesus Christ and His Gospel. Those who have been lost will be found. Jesus will not lose a single person that the Father has given to Him. We have that as our confidence as we go out spreading the gospel to the lost. So although Zacchaeus at first seems to be seeking Jesus, we find in fact that Jesus is the seeker and he is the one who finds everyone he's looking for. So that's point number one, the seeker. Point number two, the self-righteous. Let's read verse seven. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Speaking of the crowd. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
Jesus' mission often got mixed reviews. For some, it was the greatest news ever. And for others, it is repulsive. Notice the difference between Zacchaeus' response in verse 6 and the crowd. Zacchaeus is overjoyed, but the crowd grumbles. Because Jesus is going to the house of a sinner. Of a sinner. The crowd doesn't seem to think of themselves to be so lost that they would need seeking. They're disgusted with Jesus hanging out with a sinner. Because they had a higher view of themselves. Something better than sinner. Jesus isn't on a mission to save people who think they don't need to be found. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And by righteous, I think he meant self-righteous. What is your view of yourself? Does seeing other people's faults make you feel better about yourself? Do you, re- do you routinely feel like you're okay with God because you're not as bad as other people you know? If so, you may be just like the self-righteous crowd. Friend, Jesus came to seek the lost. Zacchaeus is who Jesus is after, not the self-righteous crowd. When we put other people in the sinner category, but refuse to include ourselves in that category too, we might as well be hanging a sign on the door of our hearts that says, Jesus is not welcome here. Self-righteousness is self-deception. It's self-deception. It's deceptive because you... The self-righteous person agrees that they should be righteous. We all need righteousness, and they would agree. But where they go wrong is that they don't see we can't get it from ourselves. We're not nearly good enough. We're not even close. We haven't upheld even a fraction of God's law, His commands, His perfect way of living. We can only be righteous if one would come and live a perfect life in our place, and that's what Jesus has done. Jesus' righteousness is the righteousness we need in order to have life. In verse 7, the crowd is kind of acting like a narrator for us. They're telling us what Jesus did. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Sinners are the people Jesus chose to be with. Sinners. The morally wrong, the bad, the shameful, the dirty, people that other people didn't want to talk to, people that other people despised, the lowest people in society, people whose lives seemed really, really far away from God's commands, people who did not deserve God's grace and love and mercy. Do you know any sinners? People like Zacchaeus? I know I do. I can think of one particular person whose life I know pretty well has been marked by sin since the day he was born. A person who lived for so many years claiming to know Jesus with his mouth but mocking Jesus with his life. 
This guy found every opportunity to make himself look good and never miss an opportunity to joke at someone else's expense. His heart is still riddled with selfishness, with greed, with anxiety, with pride. The tricky thing is you might not know it by just looking at him. He's, he's got a sweet family. He likes to laugh. He loves people. But if you saw inside my heart, you'd see what I'm talking about. I know a sinner because I know myself. Our witness for Christ as a church will die if we let self-righteousness live in us and among us. Our church should not be a sparkling showroom where we attempt to display spotless lives. It's a hospital for sick people where everyone knows they're sick and everyone welcomes others to find healing in Jesus and no one is ever turned away. One of, the, one of the ways we can build unity around the gospel and around Jesus in our church is for all of us to embrace personally the title, Sinner Saved by Grace. Here's a little exercise we could try as members of this church. Imagine this morning we handed out name tags as you came in the door. And instead of writing your name on the name tag, you were instructed to write, Sinner Saved by Grace. Then we went around the room introducing ourselves that way. How would our interactions be if we all own that identity? Think of the encouragement and unity we would have as we find out we have so much in common with people whose lives otherwise are nothing like ours. Think of how conflict would give way in the face of humility face of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Maybe if we don't do actual name tags with that actually written, it might be a good idea for us to have that in the name tag in our mind as we go around and interact with one another this week. Self-righteousness complains about God's grace. And as a church, we want to be people who cheer when God shows grace to the lost. People who wonder at God's marvelous grace when we see God working the life of someone who who doesn't deserve it. If we see ourselves as redeemed sinners, we'll rejoice in the mercies of God when Jesus seeks and saves others like us. So that was point number two, the self-righteous. Last, third, we see the Savior. The Savior. Let's read verses 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the Savior. We see that in these verses we see it through Zacchaeus' action, and we, th- we see it through the announcement that Jesus makes. 
This, this final interaction seems to happen inside Zacchaeus' house. When Zacchaeus stands up and declares that he's now going to give away half his money and pay back four times the amount of money that he had cheated out of people, probably as a, as a part of his business as a tax collector. What's going on here? Just a few minutes before, this, this man was rich. His life was built around extorting money from others. And now he's happy to openly admit his sins and go on a generosity spree. Notice, neither his admitting his wrongs nor his generosity were commanded by Jesus. They were completely voluntary. And his generosity, notice how exemplary it is. He goes beyond what's required for restitution. And in addition, he gives a ton of his own money away to the poor. What prompted this generosity in Zacchaeus? It was Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus that changed his life. His generosity, his sorrow over his sins show a truly changed heart. Jesus entered Zacchaeus' house and delivered him. Delivered him from the enslaving power of sin. And Jesus pursued and created a new relationship where Zacchaeus now, in response, loves to live for God and not for money. If you're in high school or if you're in college, I want to ask you particularly, what do you think about Zacchaeus giving all his stuff away? And is that the kind of life you hope to live? A life of extreme generosity? Or, or were you hoping more for a life of extravagant wealth? Now, I don't really care so much whether you grow up and get education and get a job and end up rich. That's not really what I'm, I'm asking. I'm more wondering what you're living for. You, you should probably know that, that I live for money most of my young adult life. Throughout most of college, I was addicted to internet gambling. And I was obsessed with getting rich. I want you to know that I can confidently, because of that experience, tell you that money is a cruel master. When you live to own money, you eventually find that money owns you. Do not believe the lie I believed. I know it's so attractive. I know it's persuasive. I know it seems obvious that money will bring you freedom, but it will not. True freedom comes when you find that Jesus is all you need. And if you want to talk more about that, I would love to get time with you and talk to you about how Jesus has taught me that in my life. Uh, we see that our relationship with Jesus creates a new relationship with others. Notice how Zacchaeus starts thinking about people, poor people, people he's wronged. See, Jesus makes us aware that, that we aren't the only people living on this planet. And we become aware through Jesus that there are others that are actually more important than us. Maybe this would be a good time for us to think about relationships 
we have with others that need to be redefined because of Christ? Are you in a fight with someone right now? Are you creating division with your silence, with your bitterness, with your pride? Friend, Jesus died for our peace with Him. Would we have Him die again before we pursue peace with others? Confess, confess your sin in this area to the Lord and to the people you're sinning against right now. Christ heals the relationships that we have that have been wounded by our sin. Our relationship, not only, our relationship with Jesus not only creates uh, new relationships with others, but it creates a new relationship with what we own. Zacchaeus now sees his possessions as something to be given, not something to be gained. Ephesians 2 says that we are created in Christ for good works. Money, talent, service, that can be a means, all of it, for good works, to be used for those who are in need of them. And there are many examples in our church that that show this clearly, that show how Jesus' salvation leads leads to joyfully giving up for others. Aren't you thankful for those reminders that we have around us? Moms who part with rewarding and fulfilling jobs to care for kids at home. Couples who give large sums of money to support other couples who are really in financial hardship. Single men, single women who surrender their free time and spend it taking care of people's kids, driving people to church, taking care of practical needs in our church. So thankful for those reminders. When people joyfully serve the Lord, it reminds me that it is a joy to serve the Lord. Parents, parents, how have our kids seen us joyfully giving up for Jesus? At the end of a long work, work day, do we, do we turn off the TV and turn to them and talk to them? Do we give up our days off to do things with them, things that they'd like to do? Do we organize our lives in other ways in serving our families? Or do we sigh when inconvenienced? Do we get angry when our preferences aren't followed? Our kids are watching to see if Jesus really makes that much of a difference in our lives. And they notice everything. The more we give, the more worthy Jesus appears to them. So Zacchaeus' response shows how he's been saved by Jesus. And Jesus' announcement in verse 9 and 10 explains the salvation he's given to Zacchaeus. And Jesus does connect Zacchaeus' giving with Zacchaeus' salvation. He does that purposefully because in, in Luke 18, the rich ruler, he went away sad, not willing to give up his wealth in exchange for eternal life. But Zacchaeus now stands as the opposite. A rich man who, having gained life in Jesus, willingly and happily gives up what used to be so important to him, his wealth. Jesus, seeing this response from Zacchaeus, announces that Zacchaeus' salvation is real. It's real. And he bases it in part on on Zacchaeus' eagerness, his readiness to give up his money for the good of others. 
His heart, his heart change had led to a real life habit change. Would people know, would people who know your life say that you are definitely a follower of Christ? But Jesus does not say that Zacchaeus' giving saved him. Instead, Jesus claims total responsibility for that. He says, referring to himself, salvation has come to this house. He is salvation embodied. And he, the Son of Man, had come to seek and save the lost. Even though Zacchaeus was a despised sinner in the Jewish community, God had made him a promise, just as he's made to all Israel and all of us who would receive his Messiah, his Son, Jesus Christ. As was read for us earlier in Ezekiel chapter 34, God promised, I will come and I will seek and save those who have been lost. And here we see that God did come. Jesus came. The promised shepherd who came to seek us out and save us and bring us back to God. But Jesus is so much more than just a shepherd. He's a king. He's a king. And when he calls himself the son of man, he's saying, as it says in Daniel 7, that he has been given dominion. He has been given glory and a kingdom. He is saying that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus came on a rescue mission and he came on a king's mission. He came to gather up the lost and he came to make a kingdom out of them. His kingdom. And he would rule over them. He will rule over his people. So when he finds us, he doesn't just find us. He brings us into a new life. He puts his good rule over us. He promises us his sovereign protection and his wonderful, wonderful blessings of living as a part of his people. What a reversal Jesus' salvation brings to our lives. We once were lost in darkest night and thought we knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life would have led us to our grave. We had no hope that God would own rebels like us to His will. And if He hadn't loved us first in Jesus, we would still be refusing Him. But as we ran this hellbound race, and as we remained indifferent to that it would cost us our lives, God looked on our helpless state and led us to the cross. And there we behold God's love displayed. Jesus suffering in our place. He bore the wrath reserved for us. Now all we know is grace. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Jesus is our life. Every child of God in this room is a, sing, is a citizen of God's kingdom because of Jesus, the shepherd king. 
He searched us out. He brought us out of sin and idolatry. He brought us into his good kingdom. He left his father's throne as we're about to, as we're about to sing. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. God's mercy, immense and free, found you and me. For any here who don't know Jesus, I would ask you, don't leave here today clinging to a false sense that you are good with Jesus. Don't spend any more time in your very valuable, precious life. The time is short. Don't spend it searching aimlessly for answers you will not find. Jesus is the seeker, and he is the savior of the lost. Call out to him. He will hear you. He will save you. He will find you, no matter how far off you've wandered. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at your grace again that we encounter in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that that love motivated you to send your Son to die for us so that we might live. And Christ, we know that your love motivated you to give your life for those who were lost and would have stayed lost. We're so thankful for your mercy and your grace this morning. As your people... Grow in us a joy, a true and deep joy that is always responding to the gospel in our life, that would be evident in our lives with others. We pray that you would, you would commission us with, with strength, with boldness, with courage to go out as searchers too, like Jesus, and search for the lost around us. Bring them in to your kingdom too, we pray. Your throne is the only one that endures. No other song will remain in eternity, but worthy are you, Lamb of God, who was for sinners slain. Continue to grow and expand your kingdom, Lord Jesus, as you seek and save, so that we might all reach the day gladly bowing our knees, confessing that you are Lord, and you alone are Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.